0: Well, the next figure in this series on church history is Charles Spurgeon, and you might be surprised to find that this is probably my second least favorite uh, person to cover in this series, because I am condensing so much. Lloyd-Jones will be the first, just because there's so much good information, so many quotes and good information, and so... I'm inevitably going to have to leave a lot out. But I, will, I am going to try to highlight the main things about the life of Spurgeon. And then uh, hopefully it will be an encouragement to us. You may know many of these things. You may not know all of them. But we'll, we'll consider them nonetheless. Uh, first, I want to start with my favorite all-time quote by Charles Spurgeon is this. He said, The motto of all true servants of God must be, we preach Christ in Him crucified. A sermon without Christ in it is like a loaf of bread without any flour in it. No Christ in your sermon, sir? Then go home and never preach again until you have something worth preaching. Charles Spurgeon. And I really appreciate that quote for hopefully obvious reasons. It's interesting the timing. I should have originally done this last Sunday night. But with the weather, we didn't meet last week, and so it's interesting that in light of the sermon this morning that we would be um, considering Spurgeon in that quote here tonight. I was going to say, that kind of touches upon how you ended your sermon today. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's providential, it would seem. So uh, we'll consider, just for a moment, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And then we'll revisit this at the end, verses 18 through 24. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? So the first question we'll ask is, who was Charles Spurgeon? Who was he? Well, Spurgeon was born on June 19th, 1834. He was born into a Christian family, and he was greatly influenced early on by Puritan literature, as well as his grandfather, who was a pastor as well. And as we mentioned in a previous message, when we were looking at John Bunyan, Spurgeon's favorite book to read Outside of the scriptures, as a young man, was Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. And this remained true of him even unto his later years. As far as I know, Charles Spurgeon died. Pilgrim's Progress was his favorite book outside the Bible. Despite a wealth of theological influence and persuasion by his family, Spurgeon himself remained unconverted until the age of 15. Which is kind of interesting to grow up. Your favorite book to read is the Pilgrim's Progress. And your parents and family, his mother, as we'll see, constantly prayed for him. His grandfather influenced him, his father, and all that influence. And he remained unconverted until he was 15 years old. And the story goes that Spurgeon was traveling during a snowstorm to go and hear another preacher. He, I guess it was maybe some famous minister that was passing through the area he wanted to go listen to. And while he was traveling, a snowstorm blew in. And to get out of the snow, he was driven into a Methodist church. Just He wasn't going there on purpose. He got driven into the Methodist church. And even at that, the regular minister of that Methodist church was absent due to the snow. And so that particular day, a lay Methodist man who wasn't normally a preacher filled in. All of this unlikely circumstance God was pleased to bring the gospel to bear on Spurgeon's heart for the first time that day. He heard the text, Isaiah forty five, twenty two, look unto me and be ye saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is none else. As I mentioned, his family, they leaned strongly toward a more Puritan. Presbyterianism, and he was converted in the context of this primitive Methodist church, and yet Spurgeon's own understanding of the scriptures quickly led him to a Baptist conviction. He is was a remarkable figure in that uh, if you just looked at the influences in his life, you wouldn't probably expect him to become a Baptist. And here's a quote from between an exchange between him and his mother, and I've shared maybe this before, but... It's encouraging. Charles' mother came to him one day after his conversion. And she says, Ah, Charles, I often prayed the Lord to make you a Christian, but I never a- I never asked that you might become a Baptist. That was Spurgeon's mother. Spurgeon responded. He said, Ah, mother, the Lord has answered your prayer with his usual bounty and given you exceedingly above what you asked or thought. <laughs> and so that's... Pretty funny story with his mom, Spurgeon's wit. But shortly after his conversion, Spurgeon began getting to speak uh, in different opportunities. I believe his first message he was filling in for a friend at kind of a small, more of a Bible study venue. But he was very quickly recognized as having a mighty and peculiar gift. Spurgeon would minister, he would go on to minister and pastor alongside his grandfather from shortly after he was converted at 15. Um, Then he began pastoring with his grandfather, I think at least by age 17. And then uh, at the age of 19, he was called to the New Park Street Chapel of London, uh, it had been previously pastored, and these are two figures we could have considered in church history, and they're very significant names. Um, I still do look at both of them for uh, study and preparation at times. But it would be John Gill and Benjamin Keach. Benjamin Keach and John Gill, both significant figures. Keach, especially with his work concerning Baptist theology, so. But they were former ministers here at the New Park Street Chapel in London. And it was the largest Baptist congregation at the time, and it would be later known as the Metropolitan Tabernacle. That's probably what you more likely associate with Spurgeon's name, is the Metropolitan Tabernacle. So he goes there to pastor at age 19. By the age of 22, Spurgeon had become the most popular preacher of the day. That is just incredible. 22-year-old man who is standing forward and being recognized as the favorite preacher of the day. It's remarkable how much the Lord worked in his life. He married his wife Susanna in January of 1856. And they would have twin boys that same year in September. And the sons' names were Charles and Thomas Thomas or Tom Spurgeon would go on to pastor at the Metropolitan Tabernacle after Spurgeon's death. Spurgeon would go on to have one of the most prolific ministries in the history of the church. And here's what's incredible about this man. He and Martin Lloyd-Jones shared this in common. Spurgeon had zero formal theological training in seminary or any institution of higher learning, but he was probably One of the most well-read men of his day and as we'll consider in a moment he did go on to um, establish learning institutions for aspiring ministers and so he didn't devalue education but he himself was not personally trained at any seminary or like institution so that's the life of Charles Spurgeon the second point we'll ask is what was the state of the church during Spurgeon's life First thing to consider is that most theologically grounded ministers during this time period had come from a Puritan background, which would mean that most of those people who were likely to be biblically would have been Westminster-type folks. These would have been people that were not necessarily on board with Baptist theology. Spurgeon was an advocate for the Baptist theology, and he fell in the footst- came in the footsteps and walked in the footsteps of men like Keach and John Gill, but... It was not a commonly, basically we, they were facing in their day much of what the Southern Baptist Convention faces today. That those who were Baptist oftentimes in that day were drifting towards a more of a liberalism. And even this easy-believe type of thinking, even in that day, all these years ago, 150 years ago, you had the same issues going on. And, and he often would find that he would have more theological agreement with those that differed with him on his view of baptism. And that's often been the case historically, it would seem. But Spurgeon faced much opposition in what was known as the downgrade controversy amongst fellow Baptists. And he actually would be either stepped out and left on his own accord or was kicked out of the Baptist convention he was a part of in his own day. And so that's one thing he was constantly facing. The other thing, however, was Marxism. And I've mentioned this before, Karl Marx and Charles Spurgeon were contemporaries. And in Marx's own words, at least it's reported that a friend of Marx's said this, that Marx considered Charles Spurgeon to be his greatest enemy. He believed that Spurgeon's gospel single-handedly stopped the, the advance of Marxism in Europe. That all of Europe may have become Marxist, crazy communist, if not for Spurgeon's gospel. And that's remarkable for a number of reasons, one of which is that Spurgeon, as we heard, no Christ in your sermon, go home and never preach again. He wasn't a political preacher, but he did proclaim a gospel that affected all of life. And he proclaimed this true gospel that shut down the wickedness of what was rising within Marxism in the day. So those two realities are some of the things, there are many more we could probably consider, but those are probably the two most noteworthy issues in the state of the church in that time. The third thing we'll ask is, what impact did Spurgeon have upon the church in his day? Well, it would likely be a shorter list if we were to consider the ways that Spurgeon didn't impact the church. Many of us already know and recognize he was a notable preacher and an evangelist, He's known by many just as the soul winner for the number of souls that were converted under his preaching. And the stories abound, and my mind's just flooded with quotes or stories about Spurgeon. Uh, He saw a lot of people that made professions of faith, but he didn't. Just because someone professed faith, he didn't receive it. I'm reminded at one time he had preached at an event, and the next day he was walking down the road, and there was a drunk in the ditch who called out and said, Mr. Spurgeon, I'm one of your converts. Spurgeon said, I thought you might be, because if you're one of God's converts, you wouldn't be in the ditch. And so, I mean, that's one of the things. Spurgeon was not interested at all in getting notoriety and people professing faith because of him if they weren't really changed and converted. And so Spurgeon did have an incredible impact as a pastor, but also as an evangelist. He was very much in favor of street ministry, of public preaching in the open air. He said at one time that every minister of the gospel should spend at least some time preaching on the streets in the open air. He was a major proponent of that. He was very high on gospel tracks. As a matter of fact, the first piece of literature he ever wrote, I believe, was a gospel track uh, immediately after his conversion. So, there's some aspects of the impact Spurgeon had. He also, as I mentioned earlier, had he founded an education center for aspiring ministers, and after he died, they called it simply Spurgeon's College, one of the most helpful books on the subject of ministry in general, and you'll find it at most solid theological training centers today, it's a requirement to read uh, lectures to my students. Spurgeon's communications to the men, the young men that he was pouring into. So he founded a basically a seminary. He would go on as well to establish orphanages, and he would often encourage the Christians in his congregation to feed and reach out to the poor. One interesting thing about Spurgeon is that he was attacked for opposing slavery. And particularly in, in the United States, Spurgeon was actually warned and given letters threatening him not to come to the U.S., not to come here, um, because they would kill him if he did, because of his strong stance against against slavery. And Wilberforce had much the same to say, William Wilberforce. But Spurgeon, nonetheless, he's, regard- he's regarded as the single most published author in the history of the world. That's an astounding, astounding statistic, especially because we're about to consider he died at age 57. And this was at an early point in history where you don't just have this computer, you can type out something real quick and get it advanced and gone around. Almost everything's handwritten. And then in order to print something up, you've got to make the, the actual different um, uh, little, what do you call them, the little templates in order to copy and print something up. Anyway, Spurgeon, the fact that he is even to this day regarded as the, most, the single most published author in history, Um, it says a lot about what he was doing. He had something over 3,600 sermons in his life that he preached and delivered in different ways that were often written down. Each week he would preach on Sunday and then his sermons would be transcribed and they'd be made in these little booklets and they were sold for a penny. These penny sermons would go out on Monday and that was one thing that he did. He also wrote gospel tracts and Many, many, many things Charles Spurgeon did. The the fourth thing we'll look at is the death of Spurgeon. He died at age 57. That would have been in 1892. And that he accomplished so much in such a short life, relatively speaking, is amazing. 57. How old are you, Bruce? 65, 66? In what year? Today. How old are you? I'm 60. 68. So, wow, 11 years ago. I mean, you just think about this man who has done so much in 57 years. It's pretty incredible to consider. But, you know, somebody asked him one time, they looked at his workload, they looked at all that he did, and they said, it's impossible that one man is doing all that you're doing. How are you able to keep up? His response was, you forget. There are two of us. And he was constantly aware of his need for God, of his dependence upon Christ in his life. And he firmly believed that the explanation for why he was able to accomplish so much was God's own hand upon him and work in his life. And so the fifth and final point we'll consider is how should the life of Spurgeon affect us today? The first thing I'll say is that we not, even for a moment, begin to measure ourselves by such an individual. Um, it would be easy for me to be put out of the ministry yesterday if I were to stop and measure myself by the life of Charles Spurgeon. And yet he is a motivation and he is an encouragement to see what God is able to do through someone—a man who is converted and a led by a lay Methodist preacher in the middle of a snowstorm—and then would go on, who's not educated at a seminary level, and would go on to, in many people's estimation, be. The greatest pastor to have lived this side of the New Testament. I know many people regard him highly. Obviously, our own church, we're a part of the Spurgeon Baptist Association for a reason. That the convictions of that man and those who would align themselves with his convictions um, is pretty incredible. I heard um, Charles, or not, I heard uh, Paul Washer say this one time. Somebody asked him if he was a Calvinist. He said he was a five-point Spurgeonist. That's what. Uh, that's what. Uh, Paul Washer said and so I I might tend to agree with that myself actually again let's consider this how should Spurgeon's life affect us is that he was a testimony of faithful focus upon Christ in his preaching so I want to just consider briefly again from 1 Corinthians 1. The focus of Paul, the focus here of Spurgeon and all that we've been considering. I believe that what made him most effective was his singular focus upon Christ in all things. And that if we would be used by God, then our focus needs to be the same. It wasn't just Spurgeon and it's not just Paul here, but you go and read the book of Acts. Whether it's Stephen at his stoning or Paul, the times that he preached or Peter on Pentecost. Every single time you see the apostle standing up. Taking the Old Testament and saying, here's Christ, here's Christ, here's Christ. It was always Christ. And that, I believe, is demonstrated in Spurgeon. Again, we read from Paul, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. And my desire is that we would all be as committed to being faithful servants of and those who advance the gospel. And that's not limited to office of elder or deacon or any position in the church. We're all called to be involved in this. And I'm just reminded you know, we don't even know the name of this lay Methodist preacher. History's forgotten his name, but history's not forgotten Spurgeon. And Somebody had to be used by God to bring the gospel to Spurgeon. And so what an incredible thing that is to think the gospel track you hand the random person on the street, that might be the next Charles Spurgeon you just saw walking away there. And how God might be pleased to use anybody in the advance of his kingdom. And he does often do that. And the second thing would be that we would be utterly convinced of our convictions from the Word of God. You know, I see this in Spurgeon and Lloyd-Jones and many others um, that I admire. A willingness to stand for what they believe. John Piper is another example of this today. Men who were so convinced of what they saw in the scriptures that they would not deviate from it because of what any other person said or thought, even though it would cost them relationships or other people would expect something, expect them to go ahead and agree. If they didn't see it in the text, then they couldn't follow along with it. And so I I admire that about them and pray we would have the same approach. So with that, I'll go ahead and pray and close this portion and we can gather for corporate prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, I thank you for Charles Spurgeon. I thank you for the impact you had through him. Lord, I pray that you would continue to grow us as we consider his life and consider that you, the mighty God, are the one who upheld the man Spurgeon and that apart from you, he could do nothing. Father, I pray that you would use us, that you would minister to others by us. And Father, you would continue to equip us, help us to see your son, Above all things, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.